This is a reading from the book of Romans. Whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction so that we could have hope through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures. May the God of endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude toward each other similar to Christ Jesus's attitude. That way, you can glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ together with one voice. So welcome each other in the same way that Christ also welcomed you for God's glory. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. I am your lead pastor here at Zao, and happy Pride Month. It's so lovely to be with you all today. Uh, it was amazing to be with so many of you uh, yesterday at Pride Fest and the day before. Um, I want to just say a special shout out to any of you who were at Pride Fest um, all weekend or late last night and still came in person this morning, or are showing up online this morning, or are showing up online many days from now when you've recovered. <laughs> Welcome. It's so good to be in community with you all. Now, we've been going through Year W, um, which is a special lectionary put together uh, by a black womanist biblical scholar, Will Gaffney. But we are diverging for the next six weeks um, to do a special summer series we got to have a good hook in the summer. Um, and I'm really excited about it. This series is called Lies I Heard in Church. Now, Pride Fest is a real mix of feelings for me because as a pastor in that place, before we even enter the grounds, right, there are always people who claim to represent my people and my God who are spewing hate. I personally kind of make jokes about it and brush it off in that way because that's my own defense. But it's a real bummer, right? It's a real bummer to go into a place of hope and community and connection and hear people claiming to speak for the one that you know loves you more than anything but speaking hate. And when we get into the grounds, when we're setting up the Zao booth, we know our mission. We know that we are there to spread love and affirmation and joy and celebration. We know that we're there to play games with people and to celebrate and to just have a good time. And there's always a twinge for me. We were setting up our booth and all of our banners were kind of hidden in the shadows. And so Jordy, our community member Jordy was like, listen, I just need some PVC piping and about 20, 25 minutes and we can make this, you know, we can make a big sign. We can put one of our banners up so high it'll be the first thing you see in this section. And I was like, oh my gosh, that'll be amazing. And then I realized that walking into that section, one of the first things that people would see is God is proud of you. And while I want that to feel like an unadulterated yes, and we did decide to go ahead and do that, and we got tons of positive feedback. There is that moment, that moment of, ooh, that moment of recognition that that's going to be a pain point for some people. 
that seeing God anywhere in Pride Fest is going to hurt because it's not going to be the first time God's name is invoked that day for them. And because so many of us have been told so many lies in church. And so we're going to spend the next six weeks unpacking some of those lies, including the lie being gay is wrong, the lie that trans people aren't real, the lie that Jesus is white, the lie so many of us, too many of us have heard, you're going to hell and more. And so I'm really excited to be here with you, but I just want to acknowledge that we wouldn't have this series if it weren't for all of the baggage that so many of us bring in. And some of those lies we've heard because they were spoken to us, some of those lies we've heard because they were spoken to our loved ones, and some of those lies we've heard spoken to strangers and we've thought, hmm, I don't know, I don't know about that. But whatever those lies are, we can unpack them together. We can unlearn them together. And church can be a holy place that speaks truth, that offers hope and encouragement and community so that the God who loves us, that God, her voice, their voice, his voice, is the loudest in the room. The God of love and compassion and hope and celebration and queerness and joy. Now, we're going to start with a sort of preface lie. This isn't a lie in and of itself because it's only half a sentence, but it's something that, that accompanies a lie really often. And that lie is, well, the Bible is clear about <laughs> any sentence that begins with the Bible is clear about is probably a lie. <laughs> Unless that sentence is, the Bible is clear about how confusing God is. <laughs> the Bible is clear about, it's something that a lot of us have heard, and a lot of us have heard it specifically about uh, the justification of marginalized people, right? The Bible is clear about homosexuality. The Bible is clear about gender. The Bible is clear about women in the church, right? So often we are told that the Bible is clear and we're told by people who seem so certain. It's really hard <laughs> to feel like you're in an open conversation with somebody who's come in with such certainty. But one of the other things that accompanies that certainty is uh, an absolute um, just rejection of doubts and question, right? And so when you start to press on that, like, well, is the Bible clear about that? What about this other thing? And this other thing, and this other thing, and this other thing. Now you're getting into the territory of doubting or asking a lot of questions. And are you really putting your faith in God? And so we end up in this locked down conversation where we can't actually talk about what the Bible says about homosexuality, so-called, about women in leadership, about any other thing, because we're already told that the Bible is clear. And if we ask too many questions, then we're being a doubter. We're not being faithful. Does anybody else recognize this dynamic? Has anyone else lived this dynamic and felt so trapped by it? It's really toxic. It's really toxic. Because we have a God who trusts us, who is in relationship with us, who wants to be in conversation with us, who gives us community to be in conversation. And yet, so many of us have experienced church leadership shutting down that conversation before it can even begin. 
saying, well, the Bible is clear. And the unspoken thing is, and I get to decide. I decided that the Bible is clear about X, Y, and Z, and you can't question that. Now, there are a lot of wounds and sins and brokenness in this world, and one of those sins is certainty. The certainty we have about our ideas, the certainty we have about our theology or our Bible. We want things to be clear. There is a kind of comfort in saying the Bible is clear about, unless the Bible is clear about your objectification, your marginalization, your death in so many ways. And so people take comfort in the clarity that they can claim in the Bible as long as it doesn't hurt them directly. So why? Why are we all so bought into this certainty, this myth of, of biblical clarity? I think for the average person, we desire clarity. We desire those clear answers. We desire this black and white because life is messy. People are complicated. Relationships have no clear answers. I remember I, I, I went to philosophy school for a minute. It was amazing. I don't recommend it. <laughs> and I, I loved, I loved reading these deep, thoughtful texts that were asking these big, impossible questions. But I remember also being like, oh man, I need a math class. My philosophy school didn't offer math classes except for Integrative Studies II, the history of logic and mathematics, which was very cool, but wasn't going to have any answers for me either. So instead, I took Latin. I literally took a Latin class because I wanted to have homework where I knew my answers were right. <laughs> where I knew my answers could be right or wrong, and someone could tell me, yes, that is or is not how you conjugate that verb. I needed, I needed that comfort because so much of the rest of my life was big, unanswerable questions and important, brilliant people disagreeing with each other about the fundamental truths of life and being and knowing. It was very overwhelming. Being a person is hard. And so we are looking for something to bring clarity. We are looking for something to simplify. And there is a comfort that comes from saying, well, I know. I know. I know because I looked it up in my Latin to English dictionary that the Bible is clear about this. And if we start to shake that a little bit, if we start to lose that 2 plus 2 equals 4 energy that we've been told the Bible can offer us, it can feel really destabilizing. Because if there aren't clear answers in the Bible, then what we are left with is the messy, complicated nuance of being alive without any clear-cut answers. And so for human beings, for the average person, that desire for clarity comes because it would be really nice if there was a user manual. It would be really nice if we had some answers it is a desperation for some sense of order. It is a fear of the unknown and the messy. It is a fear that we can't actually trust ourselves to discern what is real and true. 
Now, that desire for certainty can be very easily manipulated by people and institutions of power. Because if that, if that desire for certainty is desperate enough, someone coming in and saying, oh, I know, I'm certain. I'm certain and you need to be certain. And if you're not certain, there's something wrong with you. Now, I know that you aren't able or allowed to trust yourself about what's real, so you can just outsource that to me. And I will tell you every day that I have the answers because God has the answers and he told them to me. Now, God's not going to communicate that with you, and if you hear something different from God, then you're asking too many questions and not being faithful. Right? There is this locked down energy, right? And so people and systems in power can create that sense of certainty and, and hold us all hostage to it by claiming it's the only way to have a relationship with God. When in fact, we're not having a relationship with God at all. We're having a relationship with that person's interpretation of the truth. Now, when they take our fear, when these institutions and people in power take our fear and try and assuage it they get control of what truth is in our minds. And they get control, they take the definition of the Bible, and they get, to, they get to define what that is for us, and what it means, and what a relationship to it ought to be. And so they say, oh, you can't pick and choose what you listen to about the Bible, as they pick and choose what they preach and teach about the Bible. They say, you're not taking the Bible seriously, when we say that God affirms queer people. And then they scream, hey, hey, context for all the troubling things about slavery. I think they're right about context. Some people say that you can use the Bible to make a case for anything. And those folks, I have a real, I have a real empathy for that. Because that was me at 16 in philosophy school, saying, wow, brilliant minds can convince me of anything. <laughs> and I can read this philosopher this day and be like, oh my gosh, that's true. And this philosopher this day and say, oh my gosh, that's true, but these things can't both be true. And who's right? Who gets to say? Who gets to say what truth is? Now, these institutions of power that want to claim their authority in the church and in the world and say what they believe truth is, they want to claim that authority and they want to take it from you. So they say individuals can't be trusted to discern the truth of the Bible and so only those who are in authority in the church can tell you what God really means. Now, you may have experienced this in a modern church setting with people, usually men, in positions of power saying this is what the Bible says as though as though there's no question, no doubt, and no arguing. But this is not a new phenomenon. People have been trying to control access to the scriptures for years. There was a whole deal about it. I think it was called the Reformation. The, the people in power were saying, oh yeah, the, uh, the scriptures should remain in Latin. I know that no one can read Latin except for people who have enormous privilege and go to philosophy school. But it should remain in Latin so that the people in the church uh, can read it and the people sitting in the pews have to just take our word for it on what it says. And some people were mad about that. One of those people, his name is Martin, got so mad about it that he translated all the scriptures into German, which was the most common language where he lived. And he said, listen, 
Scripture is an access point for us to talk about God and to understand the history of God's people and how we understand who God is. And no one should have sole custody of it. This is for all of us. And we all have authority here. And to try and take that away and compartmentalize it and only give it to the people who already have so much power is a setup for abuse. Now, it can be easier for us to see that dynamic from 500 years ago and be like, yeah, that is abusive. That is abusive for you to take this holy thing, say that it is indisputable, and then make it completely inaccessible to people, and then you get to just decide what it means and tell them and say, take my word for it? Like, (laughs) that is abusive. And that was abusive 500 years ago, and it was abusive when you were growing up. When the church tells us that we have no authority to discern what God is saying in the scriptures, that we have no right to question other people's interpretations, that nothing is up for debate, not only is it abusive to God's people, but it's also a fundamental misunderstanding of what the Bible is. What is the Bible? When I was a kid, I got all kinds of acronyms and songs about it. The B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God. What about B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth? Has anyone heard that one? That one's a real bummer. (laughs) I always thought of it, though, kind of like the thing you're leaping through really quickly before you step into the beam that's going to take you onto the UFO. (laughs) You said basic. This is very complicated. We've been told that the Bible is an instruction manual. We've been told that the Bible is a set of rules. But that's actually not what the Bible is. Now, the Bible has some rules in it. The Bible has some instructions in it. But unless we're willing to go through some very complicated steps to do, you know, rituals from thousands of years ago, most of us actually aren't that interested in the instructions part of the Bible. And we can kind of more easily say like, oh, well, the instructions for how to build your tabernacle for your, your, the, the festival of booths. I mean, like, that's not for me. I got PVC piping. It's going much better. Right? So like, we, we can actually kind of look at most of the instructions and say like, ah, that's contextual. But then there are so many other things that have been held over our heads that we've not actually been allowed to engage in, to discuss. And so, I want to ask again, like, what is the Bible? What is the Bible for? Well, I want to tell you what we teach at Zao. And I use that phrase specifically, what we teach at Zao, what I believe. Because I want you to feel deeply in my language and in our conversations here that I don't think that I have any more authority to tell you what the Bible says than anyone else, including those people who have told you that they're the only ones. What I believe about the Bible, and what we say we believe about the Bible at Zao, if you check our website, is that we believe the Bible is a gift from God, crafted and curated by a community of ancestors of the faith. If you want to get that little drop down for more details. The Bible is not a single book, but a library containing many works of many genres. These poems, letters, myths, histories, legal documents, apocalyptic writings, and more 
create a rich tapestry of God's wisdom as received and understood by the people of God throughout history. We interpret these scriptures beginning with the teachings of Jesus in the synoptic gospels by intentionally reading from the margins. That is, beginning as Jesus did with the experience and needs of those who have been harmed or excluded most centered. So what we're claiming here is what we believe the Bible is and also part of that interpretation question, how we approach it, how we are making meaning of what the Bible is. But the Bible is really messy. There are so many different genres, so many different ways of writing, so many different authors that came together, oral histories that became written, different versions of the same stories put in the Bible multiple times. And you would think that that would make this kind of like clear-cut, the Bible is clear thing fall apart immediately. It does for me. But we really hold on to that. Because if the Bible isn't clear, if the Bible isn't clear, then what is it for? I've heard people ask me this before, like, why would God make it confusing on purpose? That seems so mean. But they're not really asking it. It's usually a rhetorical question, like, that's stupid that God would give us something confusing. And I, I kind of, I empathize with that because we want something easy and clear-cut. But I think it's actually quite silly to suggest that God would give us something clear before God gives us something messy and confusing. Because when we think about the Bible, one of the questions we have is like, who wrote it? Who wrote what parts when? And there's like lots of debate about this. Um, there are lots of traditions about it, like Moses wrote the whole first five books. Don't worry about the fact that he dies in it. He wrote about his own death. Bible people are magic. It's fine. Right? And we just like, don't, don't think too hard about it. Don't ask questions. I know it doesn't make sense. Shh. But scholars are like, actually, like, I mean, he, he did die in the plot of that history. So uh, probably didn't write it. Probably didn't write it. So how do we know who wrote what? There are also, for instance, a lot of letters that are attributed to Paul. And so the tradition is like, oh yeah, Paul wrote all of those. But scholars who have studied these things say like, actually it was super normal to attribute stuff to a teacher or to a prominent figure in the faith. And so we need to ask more questions before we just assume that all of this is written by Paul. And they have a whole bunch of different rubrics. And one of the rubrics that we have for ascertaining like who wrote this, who influenced it, whose mark is on this, is what kind of style it's written in, what the content is, if it's consistent with other things that we know about. Because there are some letters that we know were written by Paul. Like we have lots of historical affirmation that like we feel quite certain these letters were written by Paul. So the other ones that claim to be written by Paul, do they line up? Are they consistent in content, in tone, in vocabulary? And so I think when we're thinking about God's influence on the Bible, if we're starting from the premise that God is the creator of all things, and we think that God at some level through human beings authored the Bible, then we're going to assume that there's going to be some consistency across style and genre and vibe. So when we look at God's other works, you know, everything, 
we ask some questions, some stylistic questions. Is it linear? No. Is it simple? No. Are there instructions? None. Does it all make easy sense? No. So is it clear? No. Creation itself is not clear. Creation is a mess. Creation is complicated. Creation is gorgeous and like so brilliant and so complicated that we actually really, when we're honest, can admit that we don't understand how it works. We're learning about it and it's super fun to learn about. We study all the things, but most scientists will be very quick to tell you that there's a lot more we don't know than that we do know. And like, we're kind of cool with that. We're figuring it out. We don't meaningfully understand most things. And when we think about what we do know as humanity, most of what we know collectively, we don't know individually, right? So like we have this ecosystem of knowing where humanity has figured a bunch of stuff out. But if you ask Steve, he can tell you about three things, <laughs> right? So like I have no real meaningful idea of how the root systems of trees in forests work. I read a book once, it was super cool. I was like, ooh, trees talk to each other, but I don't know what that means. But the person who wrote it does. He knows a lot about trees. But what he probably doesn't know is like the geological makeup of Mount Everest. But somebody does know that. But does she know how many bones are in her hand? Lots of other people know that. And so there is this kind of experience we have collectively of creation that we actually do know a lot but that knowing is contained not identically in every person but collectively across us all and so we lean on each other a lot if for some reason i need to know how many bones i have i go to wikipedia right where the ecosystem has coalesced a lot of information where we share and exchange and we say wow this is, this is something that you really know. Now, do we know everything about bones? Absolutely not. But what we do know can provide us with deeper understanding and greater questions, and we can share that with one another. So we have to lean on each other. We have to exchange with each other in this ecosystem of understanding. Creation is something that we can live in and love and be a part of, without having certainty or clarity, clarity about most things. Creation is something that we can study and learn from and delight in. Creation is something that each of us has a unique perspective on that we can share with each other for greater understanding. But it is unique to us, and no one else will know creation in the exact way that we do. And when we add up our collective knowledge about creation, it's quite a lot, but it's still not everything. And there's so much more to know and discover and enjoy. And so, if we are approaching the Bible and saying, do we attribute this to God? It should fit within that style. It should fit within that vibe. It is fully on brand for God to give us a Bible that makes very little sense. Because that is all of creation. And it doesn't diminish its beauty. We see the Bible as messy as creation, as relational as creation, simultaneously full of information and also somewhat beyond our comprehension. 
We see the Bible, like creation, as contextual and conversational and ultimately best understood when information is shared across a vast ecosystem of diverse perspectives. The scriptures talk about something called the communion of saints. That's how it's usually translated into English, the communion of saints. Language that makes more sense in our context is spiritual ancestors. These are the folks who have come before us to be in conversation, to share their unique perspective, to tell the stories and write the poems that communicate what they know to be true about God, what they know to be true about love and about the search for meaning in community. That's what the Bible is. The Bible is a gift from those who have come before us. The Bible is from our kin, and it's for our community, our family. So the scripture today, telling us what the scriptures is for, from Romans, one of the ones we know is from Paul, or feel very confident. Whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction so that we could have hope through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures. May the God of endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude toward each other, similar to Christ Jesus' attitude. That way you can glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ together with one voice. So welcome each other in the same way that Christ also welcomed you for God's glory. Now, I'm going to summarize that in language that makes more sense to me. All those scriptures were written for your benefit, to give you hope. You know, you're going to have to endure through it, slog a little bit sometimes. But that offering of those who have come before you can give you hope and encouragement if you can commit yourselves to that community of voices that collected it for you. And God, who also endures in relationship with us and encourages us, can help us to think about each other here and now that same way, as kin, as comrades, as people with whom we endure, and people we are called to encourage. That's how Jesus thinks of us. And if we can do that, really be in this together with one another and everyone who came before us, and everyone who is to come, and the gifts of stories and memories that we've been offered, that we offer to one another, then we can come together in the glory of love. So open yourselves to each other, to each other's perspectives, to each other's experiences, to the truth of God that emerges through the voices of those you are in community with. Open yourselves to each other in the same way that Jesus opened himself to you so that we can all be a part of God's loving community. No one, no one knows what the Bible means. We all are called to a collective discernment, to collective knowing. And rather than undermining one another, telling one another that we are not to be trusted, that there is some authority far away that can tell us what it means, our call is to lean into trust with one another, to distrust those powers and systems of domination, and to trust the marginalized, the oppressed, the people of God, the lived experience of love. 
and to know that I cannot fully know God's love without that ecosystem of relationship. The Bible is a part of our tradition because our spiritual ancestors are a part of our church. And we are called to be good kin, good spiritual ancestors to those who are with us and who will come after us. So let's steward these stories, these truths, these dialogues, these debates, these disagreements with thoughtfulness and love. And let us welcome more voices in. Let us welcome more perspectives in rather than shutting it down, saying that's confusing, that's overwhelming. I want to know what the truth is. The truth, the capital T truth exists, but it exists held together in the communion of saints. And no one can claim it for themselves. The Bible is clear about one thing. Messy, loving community is the path to knowing God. And I am so grateful for those who have come before us and written down or told the stories of what felt true to them so that we can collectively discern what is true here and now. Will you pray with me? Good and holy God, we pray that you would pour your truth in love through your creation. God, we pray that we could be discerning and get clear-eyed understanding of what is posing as truth but is actually domination or abuse or fear. God, I pray that you would allow us to trust ourselves and trust one another, that you would show up, that your voice would pour forth through your people, and that we could know and delight in who you are. God, all of your creation, all of your creation is holy and good. May we find that love in one another. Amen.